I'm Michael Geary, and this is the EU History Podcast. On this episode, we turn to the 1970s and the global evolution of finance capitalism and the relationships between the European and global discussions in the early history of international banking regulation and supervision. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Alexi Drac, an assistant professor in modern economic history at Paris-Huit, Vincent Saint-Denis University, who has a PhD in history from my alma mater, the European University Institute in Florence, and who has also been a research associate in international economic history at Glasgow University in Scotland. Alexi, welcome to the EU History Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I should actually start by asking, I suppose, since you have lived in some wonderful locations, Florence, Paris and Glasgow, where is the food better? Or is that too controversial? <laughs> is that too controversial a question? <clears throat> That's not uh, the trick. Actually, uh, it depends. Um, I would say on a daily basis, I was very impressed by uh, Italian food. The average food is very good because you have a lot of sun, so the vegetables and fruits are very good. I mean, Scotland uh, was playing in a different... Uh, <laughs> In a different category um but i cooked a lot myself and uh, i'm not a great cook but i mean i can't really i, did, I don't have a terrible memory of the of the food in scotland i had a and i, I was very fond of a shop uh, nearby where i lived where where they had very good vegetables and, and fruits uh, it was called roots and fruits and i, I really liked it roots and fruits and uh, did you did you become addicted to haggis or did you decide to skip that particular culinary no, I did. Uh, I did try, and I liked it. I wouldn't say it went as far as being, I mean, addicted to it. But uh, I mean, I'm okay with this. Listen, I'm particularly excited to do an episode on this particular topic on banking and um, international banking regulation. I suppose not least because, as an Irish person, I'm still rather traumatized by the collapse in the Irish banking system. Um, in the mid to late 2000s, um, the lack of regulation and supervision, or where there was supervision and regulation, why the regulators and the supervisors uh, appeared to be asleep at the wheel. And then in Ireland, we had the arrival of the IMF and and the legacy of that financial crash, you know, played out then for years thereafter. Um, so really excited to to um, do uh, a podcast episode on regulation and supervision in the in the seventies. Let me start um, by asking you. What led you academically to research the world of money, capitalism, and banking within the context of European integration? Well, that's actually a good question because initially I had no that much interest into these uh, topics. I was a student undergrad in history and anthropology, and I was really interested in other things. But as a as I entered the master, as I became a master student, uh, the the 07, 08 crisis uh, broke out, and uh, I think that's that's the main reason why uh, why I it attracted my 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 interest towards uh, financial affairs, and there were there was this big thing coming uh, coming out, and I was really had no idea what was going on. Plus, I had a, had, had a professor as an undergrad as a, in, uh, as a historian uh, who was really into uh, economic history, and I had really I really liked him. So I think the combination of uh, having uh, in my university a professor specialized in uh, is, uh, in economic and financial history, plus uh, the context, uh, the global financial crisis, uh, pushed me towards uh, looking into these things for a master's dissertation. Uh, at the moment, at that time, I didn't know I would continue after for a PhD, but I wanted to try. I wanted just to have a to uh, to have a look into this, and then I continued eventually. And I think that's how it went. 
And and how complicated was it, I suppose, from your bachelor background to, I suppose, have a brain for this world of numbers, for regulation, for finance, for capitalism, understanding that? Yeah, it was not easy uh, because I was not uh, re- I did not have much training in economics or business. Uh, so I, I I remember to have um, started a kind of, uh, you know, some kind of lexic uh, uh, for the for the vocabulary, you know, I needed to I need to you know to have a list of uh, these words I didn't know about to look at for the definition for the meaning and uh, and to keep to keep this in uh, on paper and so that I could learn uh, quickly. And I remember to have read uh, saw a few books and uh, uh, to uh, to get to get me through this uh, in, in, within this this world. And then I think it went little by little. Uh, also uh, attending courses in economic history. I would say economic history was a bit maybe less hardcore in this in this dimension than pure economics or pure business uh, um, studies. And uh, economic history is, is is made by I mean in France particularly at that time it was still very much made by by historians. But so so it it helped also to have a uh, to have a, a bridge. It's written in other countries. Sometimes it's really dominated by economics. And uh, and it can make uh, the discussion between history and economics quite difficult, particularly because there is so much uh, mathematics involved in uh, economics uh, discourses. Whereas the the economic history I was uh, trained in in France was purely uh, like history like with very few numbers. I got to I had to learn a bit more ab- after, but uh, starting it was it was uh, not too hard. I didn't have to learn. Uh, regression equations and this kind of thing immediately. (laughs) Lucky for you. Well, as obviously by the time we get to some of your later work, you've obviously mastered the art of this fascinating world. But if we can just kind of dive into the world of the 1980s, how can we account for the increased focus on banking supervision and the efforts at different forms of regulation in the 1970s, both in Europe and more globally? I think uh, I think the most important element uh, was the, the return uh, of financial failures and crises. Not always big crises, but but just the return of the frequency of failures of uh, uh, banks, which which were really big, not huge banks, but uh, who had uh, severe losses or who were failing in several countries. Regional or small crises which uh, broke out in the 1970s really uh, attracted the attention of uh, regulators and supervisors. That was, I, I would say that's what was really one main element. And and, and this was combined with uh, uh, a context which was really a, a jump in the unknown uh, to some extent because there was the end of the Bretton Woods system, which maybe for, uh, I don't know if all the listeners are know what this meant exactly but for the in the world of economic affairs it was really something um a bit surprising and some uh authorities from various countries were not very reassured by this uh, new world of basically currencies uh, not being defined by dollar and through dollar by gold but just through the market uh uh, being defined by one uh, against another uh, so that was a big uh, a big uh, new uh, element of the international monetary system and then there was the oil shock uh, which created another uh, uh, big um, change in the financial system and authorities particularly in, in the regulator regulators in the financial sector were re- uh, were really um, uh, worried about uh, how much that would be a problem for uh, for the economy at large but also for financial institutions so that was that was a, a, a big a big problem there were um, 
there were other other things which uh, were maybe uh, on the side, uh, but and but continuously uh, raising attention from uh, regulators, like uh, the, the growth of international lending from banks, which was linked actually to the oil shock, uh, but not not only related to the, to the oil shock, played a big role also because regulators could see that banks were lending more and more even compared to the to their capital uh, so they could see uh, in the archives you see okay the delegates from this country or that country say i'm uh, looking at the numbers of the average uh, activity basically what they say assets uh, uh, of banks compared to what they have in store like uh, the, uh, the the capital the reserve and so on and uh, this ratio is declining and uh, and that's uh, that. What was quite enough, kind of frightening for for several authorities. So there was also these elements, and and through the 1970s, the, these tendency uh, went on and on. Uh, the banks were lending increasingly, to, in particular, to developing countries. So that was raising the the question of what would happen if uh, one country, a big one, would default on its debt if it could not re repay its debt. Uh, some countries were also wondering what would happen if several countries cannot uh, repay their debt, and that was the case on the, uh, of uh, many there were big borrowing countries like Brazil, Mexico, Argentina, the most famous ones, but also actually Eastern European countries were attracting many, much attention, uh, Poland in particular, and just to be just to one thing which is often cited in the literature to, to explain how authorities were really uh, following this increasingly by the end of the decade after the, the second oil shock in the in 79 and uh, also the what we call the Volcker shock in, in 79 so the, the reaction of the US Federal Reserve which increased its interest rates to to uh, to fight inflation so so some authorities in particular in, in the UK created like studies within uh, the, the Bank of England and they called it apocalypse now and uh, so and that was a study to uh, to see uh, to try to uh, anticipate what would happen if one major borrowing country would uh, default like a big one like Mexico or Brazil and actually uh, it was this fear was not misplaced because in the 80s there were about 50 uh, countries which uh, uh, which defaulted partially or totally on their debt uh, so authorities were seeing it coming some, some, somehow so they were aware of the there were small failures small small crises and there were a fear increasing fears of big of big crises so that mm -hmm. so that's how little by little they, they, uh, they brought attention to the issues of supervising banks I suppose this focus then on supervision seems to result in the development of institutional structures can you explain I suppose the role and composition of some of these groups and how closely connected to the EEC are they and I suppose for me when I was reading your work I was struck by the fact that did it matter that that these groups were composed in some instances um, of the same people so some people are sitting on both different committees and I was also struck then by whether or not most of these these the composition of these committees are men whether there was yeah. ever a gender balance yeah. um even in the 70s so i know if, there's a few questions there but yeah i know it's a very important question actually when i was uh doing my phd so it was on this committee which became famous later on called the basel committee on banking supervision and uh, but i also looked into eec uh, uh eec groupings and uh, and i actually also looked at the, the profile uh, of these people and I uh, looked for women. Actually, in in the Basel Committee, there was one uh, woman, woman in particular. Who, who uh, I mean, one in uh, from uh, 
1975 to 1988, there was only one. And uh, so it was a very masculine environment. And also in, in, in the records, uh, uh, it's um, also, I mean, you can see how, uh, meetings after meetings, how they organize through a very classic uh, separation of gender. Uh, uh, when there is a meeting elsewhere than in the main, uh, uh, when, than in the usual place, they organize visits and program for ladies. So that's typi I mean, typical of, uh, of this uh, high uh, economic uh, forums, uh, of high level economic forums. Uh, so very masculine. And yeah, these institutions uh, were, were developing in the 70s uh, on the international basis. Actually, um, they already existed at the national level. Uh, most countries had institutions which, uh, uh, which were um, uh, supposed to monitor banks. Uh, some of them, as, they could be quite small, but they all, all countries had something somewhere or another. Some of them dated back to the 1930s, for, for, to the Great Depression. Uh, sometimes it went uh, uh, way further back in time, like in the US, uh, but also in Sweden. There were like institutions look, looking at uh, supervising banks before the Great Depression, but the Great Depression uh, prompted the creation of new institutions or reinforced those who were uh, already existing. So there were things at the national level, but the 70s is really when the international level uh, developed. Among the first was uh, this European uh, group uh, of supervisors called the Group de Contact, which I, I talk about in, in this article. Uh, Globalization Laboratory. And uh, so this was uh, uh, initially uh, created in 1972, and it was purely an informal committee initially. And it was made at the initiative of the members. So these members were supervisors. In some countries, people used uh, different vocabulary. In, in, in France, it was called controller, bancaire, controlling banks, uh, controller of banks. And there was actually also debate uh, whether or not the change of words used uh, is also change of policy. But that's maybe a uh, something for another another time, and uh, the, the the group de contact was uh, so basically supervisors from Europe from EEC countries uh, who ma made contacts with each other to try to uh, to anticipate issues to see if, because to see how they could solve issues uh, because they had common issues to, to deal with. Uh, for instance, a bank which had subsidiary or branches uh, um, uh, in Germany and the Netherlands or uh, uh, Belgium, uh, whereas uh, its uh, headquarters were in France. Um, how the French supervisors could know what's happening in, this, uh, in these uh, subsidiaries. And there, they were very uh, important, even if they could, they may sound subtle to the listeners, but very important differences in terms of legal differences. But the differences between uh, subsidiaries, which uh, could be entirely owned by uh, a bank, but which are uh, legally independent. Uh, so, uh, and, and could be a subsidiary or a branch. A branch is legally dependent. So usually the regulators, supervisors, they know what's happening in foreign branches, but they don't know what's happening at that time. They didn't know what was happening in foreign subsidiaries. And sometimes they knew close to nothing at all. And uh, so they called the European counterparts to see what was going on. So that that's, was the first in, informal group. Uh, and then there came this big Basel committee in banking supervision, initially not informal, but not super formal and not famous. It became famous later on. And it was uh, broader geographically because it was based on the group of 10 countries, so in included at the US, Canada, Japan. And, uh, and these institutions uh, were for, for a while um, two important international uh, forums, even if they were not uh, influential in initially uh, politically, but they, many things happened in, in uh, Programs. Just as a um, uh, as a side note, there are actually the Nordic countries had maybe one of the first true international uh, uh, grouping already in the interwar period. They had created a, 
and they had created a group of supervisors between uh, Sweden, Denmark, uh, Norway, Iceland, I think was part of it. So they, had, they had also some kind of experience in this. Coming back to this EEC versus a uh, group of 10 uh, committees, so basically there were two committees with delegates uh, from each uh, from uh, each member countries. In the group de contacts, the EEC one was one delegate per country and it was a supervisor. So supervisors were, uh, could vary a little bit from one country to another, but usually it was someone which resembled some kind of civil servant. Sometimes uh, he, more than she, uh, worked in a central bank. Uh, not always could be Minister of Finance, could be a special a special institution in Germany. It's a special federal institution of specialized in supervision. In the UK, it had been very informal until '74, so until the very beginning of the Basel Committee. Actually, they created the banking supervision department within the Bank of England. In the US, so for the Basel Committee, not the EEC, it was there were also a couple of institutions specialized in supervision of banks, like the control of the currency, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. So each country had its own history, uh, banking history, banking regulation history, and and then when these international committees were created, uh, they used delegates coming from these institutions. So these people, their profile had looked into the, the biography also to see a bit what kind of people were, were uh, sitting on these committees. They had some um, common points and also uh, strong differences from one country to another. They resembled somehow the profile of their, each of their own country. Uh, uh, some, I would say about two thirds of them had the training in law, uh, one third of them had the training in economics, some of them had the training had been in at proper bankers before, but not all of them. In, uh, in some countries like France, uh, had a very strong tradition of civil servant. Uh, so yeah, it varied a bit, a little bit. But it's, uh, when they were sitting on the committee, they were representing somehow public institutions. Even though one can always discuss if central banks and so on were public institutions, but uh, but they, they were uh, not they were on the side of the authorities. They were not bankers. They were not private banks. In the Swiss case, it was a bit uh, particular because they were very very close to the private sector and the EEC was um, so basically when the members of uh, of the group of, of the EEC group called the group de contact were basically the same when uh, the, the, uh, at the Basel committee uh, those European countries which were part of the EEC were sent the, the same people that they could be sitting on both uh, on both committees and that was made on purpose sometimes it was also because uh, these people could speak english which at the time was not so frequent uh, in this administration uh, particularly in france and in these countries but also because um it had coordination and the idea was also to uh, try to use as much as possible the the discussions uh, held within the european forums and this uh, group the contact in particular to try to counterbalance as much as possible, the huge weight of the US in the bro in the broader discussion within the Basel Committee. So particularly continental Europeans were very much uh, hoping to use the European Forum to, to have a bit more weight uh, on the on the on the global discussion. I mean, global with Japan and the US. The UK was a bit uh, more um, uh, was a bit closer to the US, so they they see it less maybe less as this, but uh, uh, in this perspective, but. But they were very into. Uh, they were uh, also very much uh, into following closely what was going on at the EEC level in terms of banking regulatory activity. So these networks and people are actually very interesting to to look at uh, because sometimes people leave the committee and you can see they're still in relation after. Uh, sometimes they leave the committee and they go to the private sector um, or to another international organization linked with financial regulation. So it's interesting to map. 
this network and to follow uh, these trajectories before, during, and after the research actually interesting part of this uh, research. So I, I find this whole world really fascinating because <coughs> you, you have people, as you say, entering and leaving these networks. Uh, and as you also flagged there, um, how people are appointed to these networks, right? So national governments appointing people either from the finance ministries or from their central banks. Now, if we mm. if we look then at the EEC, uh, so what I, what I found really interesting from your work is the role of the European Commission or the role of the European community in trying to find a role for itself within this wider world or this emerging world of kind of transnational, international regulation. So we can see the European Commission, what they're trying to do, but I was curious to see or to know, particularly as 1970s wears on or moves on and we move into the 1980s, does the European Parliament have any roles in these efforts at banking supervision or regulation? Or do, do you see after direct elections in 79, as we move into the 80s, the Parliament trying to exert some kind of a role in regulation or push a particular agenda? I haven't seen a huge uh, influence because the Commission was still uh, very much maybe the proactive institution in terms of uh, regulatory initiative. I saw it in particular, an interesting thing was actually when I looked at the records of the British Bankers Association, which was the, the, uh, the main uh, professional association of bankers in, in the UK. Uh, and we were very um, much um, somehow scared also by the European integration process and by, by all this regulatory activity. And they followed it very closely. And they were conducting lobbying activities in Brussels. And they also sent delegates to the European Parliament, member of the European Parliament. But they tended to, uh, they also said in, in their records that basically it's important to have a look, uh, to have a discussion. Uh, a contact with a member of, of the European Parliament, but the Commission is uh, the main uh, institution in this area. In my uh, research up to now, I haven't seen uh, the European Parliament as a huge, uh, having a huge influence in, in the late 70s, early 80s. It did um, have a role in voting in the end uh, directive, but the directive was mostly, uh, or where mostly the directives were mostly um, created and drafted by the Commission and, uh, and, and all the previous forms of the of these uh, previous versions of the directive were made and drafted by the commission and exchanges with the financial sector and all. So far, I haven't seen a huge role from the parliament. So what is the EEC's goal when it comes to regulation and oversight? Or put another way, so is the EEC focused on the, fo the area of making sure that there is fair competition or reducing risk? financial risk or on creating an optimal financial environment as they try to slowly move towards economic and monetary union after you know certain failures in the early 70s that's actually a very good question because in these discussions uh that the, the commission had with bankers actually when they in the 70s they also tried to talk about their project with uh, the profession bankers sometimes um, from various countries ask the same question what do you, what is your goal what what why do you want to do this we don't need um, uh, uh, so from the from the private sector itself there was some kind of skepticism uh, in the 70s about uh, the energy was the, that the commission was uh, investing in this uh, in, in this area and and uh, and also i would say initially the risk part was not so prominent it became uh, it became prominent later on and of course the the final moment um, of the uh, uh, of this uh, huge attention given to risk and the risk of 
crisis prevention was much later on in the, after the 2008 or, or 708 and 2010 crisis when the, the banking union was was uh, was established when that, it was kind of obvious politically that there was a question with a financial crisis before that i mean in the 70s 80s the the, the idea that uh, delegates from the commission often put forward was well, the, so there was the, there was a question of um, creating a um, a level playing field, this kind of competition uh, rule, but it was going beyond uh, the financial sector alone. So this was this was um, dealing with enterprises in the EEC generally, and not necessarily with the banking sector specifically. But that was that was also a part of the EEC policy. When it came to banks in particular, they were putting forward various uh, various arguments, such as a, a better integrated uh, banking market would um, uh, create or enable a better allocation of credit within uh, the EEC. Uh, or one thing that they really uh, put forward initially was the idea to kind of use the, the what they had done in, uh, in the common market for goods uh, in, the, in the 60s to use it in, in the banking sector. So in the mid 60s uh, onwards, from the mid 60s onwards, they um, developed this uh, idea of uh, creating a common, ma common market in banking. That was really uh, something they really wanted to, to put forward. And the idea was to, to make each national market the same as other uh, national markets. And to basically make the EC market would be eventually, would have to become the same as uh, as the, the home market for a bank. So there would be, the idea was there would be no difference between France and Germany for a bank or France mm -hmm. or, and uh, the UK. Uh, bankers were skeptical about that, but, but, but that was the, the plan. There was a common market reasoning uh, on one side, one side, and there was a monetary reasoning which has which was somehow parallel, and these two merged uh, somehow in the eighties, uh, where uh, EMU considerations uh, really took off, and uh, and that it provided also uh, other reasons for integrating uh, banking um, regulation in a. In, uh, in the EEC, and because one uh, dynamic was also feeding the other, basically we, we need to uh, we need to if we want EMU, we need to uh, liberalize uh, uh, capital market, uh, mm -hmm. and if we do that, we need to harmonize or at least at least to coordinate better uh, banking re uh, regulatory systems. These motives changed over time. And in, in 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 a nutshell, maybe one thing that the commission was, had always in mind was to further integration. Uh, basically, uh, that's how also bankers uh, saw the commission uh, from the UK in particular, uh, British bankers, but even French bankers uh, say, okay, basically the commission wants to pursue European integration, and banks is one uh, are one uh, area where where they, they can do it. Because of course there is the common market element, and presumably. You know, the the more that that the Europeans are integrating uh, within the four freedoms, then eventually they're go it's going to catch up to banking. It's going to mm. catch up yeah, to regulations yeah. and things like that. Mm. But of course, there's always the the focus of the Commission trying to expedite that process, to push that process further, mm. probably faster than member states are, are were prepared or were were ready for. Mm. And then, of course, you've got people like bankers who are also. And I suspect there's probably a lot out there then, or. Did you come across research or archival material on bankers lobbying the commission, or is, the, yeah, is yeah. there is there records of? Because I suspect yeah, there's yeah. quite a bit of that. Yeah, and it's fascinating. These are fascinating records, actually, because it's uh, they, these records can be a bit difficult to find. Uh, actually, in the UK, it's much more it's much more open uh, uh, than in uh, several other countries that try to 
I've tried in this area. Um, sometimes in, in the individual banks uh, archives themselves, you can find uh, internal discussions or how they how they see it. Uh, um, so also some interviews uh, from from the time or professional uh, journals like the Journal of the uh, French Association of Bankers or Italian Association of Bankers, etc. Uh, so and it's quite interesting. The, the best uh, the best record I've seen in, in this area were in, in the UK. Uh, because they had a real, a real clear organization, and it was uh, they were really discussing uh, things, uh, and they were really feel, feeling uh, that the Commission world was something a bit alien to them. It was with too much paper, too much regulation. There was really a clash of culture for them. There was this, this idea of gentlemanly uh, capitalism, if I may say, yeah. uh, where it also the, the, it it um, it uh, characterized the. Uh, the transformation of the city in, uh, of London in the 1970s, whereby uh, for a long time issues and things have been had been solved by interconnections uh, and uh, the fact that people knew each other. Whereas uh, in continental Europe there was a this tradition of written rules. So there were also different uh, ways of uh, in each country of bankers to convey their views. Some friends they liked to go through the Ministry of Finance in France, and which then would uh, convey the, the view. Uh, of bankers to Brussels, uh, but it's actually quite interesting to, to see. Um... And so how far then can we say that the European community was responsible for global banking regulation, or is it more appropriate to say that the EEC's role in the late 70s, early 80s was more about, I suppose, encouraging debate between global partners like the United States? Yeah, maybe maybe this uh, second uh, proposal could, could be more... Um, appropriate maybe i would not go as far as saying that the eec was responsible for uh, uh, global regulation but maybe what is interesting what i found interesting when looking at these worlds uh, of uh, global regulation if i may say an eec regulation was um, the fact that uh, eec countries used the experience sometimes gained a little bit before uh, the these forums at more global level were created. They use this experience and also the uh, expertise they gained in in, in these uh, the EEC level to then put them forward in more in broader uh, forums. And um, it's it it seemed to me that sometimes uh, the EEC was uh, in in the area of banking regulation of a kind of globalization but smaller with with a uh, with a smaller group of partners where they where they could a bit test uh, ideas and uh, devise uh, ways to respond to international challenges and sometimes they discussed this in the european level and then they had ideas to put forward uh, uh, for instance at the global at the basel committee banking supervision with the us and japan and sometimes they say, they say it openly in in the, in the records okay or in, in the meetings with the us and japan and say okay we have tried this uh, at the eec we think that's a good idea uh, so they use it also it's, it's difficult to delineate what is some kind of political uh, tool to uh, push for for something they want and some what is exactly where where they are really convinced that the technique uh, is worth trying uh, more globally this uh, i would say that so maybe a bit more than uh, just um, encouraging debates maybe test uh, the ec uh, was also, was somehow used to test uh, proposals uh, in a smaller group of countries that's mm. how i would uh, interesting and portray. to 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 kind of bring this full circle then you write in this really wonderful article um that european integration uh, adapted capitalism for its own political project but was soon overtaken by it mm. what do you mean by yeah. that 
<laughs> yeah, it's actually the, so this article was part of a special issue on uh, European integration and capitalism. All the authors were also asked to reflect on capitalism, which was an interesting, very interesting thing. So maybe in the first place, I had not think about uh, how uh, exactly how to phrase this relationship with capitalism, but it, I came up with this uh, idea because basically uh, I meant that um, my impression was that EEC actors involved in this question of banking regulation, particularly particularly in the Commission side, uh, clearly wanted to further European integration and wanted to use enterprises and in this case banks to help them in this project. I tried also to develop this idea in other articles. Uh, the Commission looking for enterprises as support for their uh, for their plan uh, when they had governments which are a bit reluctant they, they could use it okay look at enterprises are calling for this so that could be a, an extra weight for in a political bargaining and on the other hand uh this trend uh also created tensions with uh, global forces going on at the same time in the sense that uh, the rise of risk and crisis or globalization in general were trends which were going well beyond europe so much that in the end it could be a bit difficult to de to delineate in the financial sector what was European from what was global. And actually, actually that's a point that many bankers uh, said, particularly by the end of the 80s, uh, when there is this uh, horizon 1992 uh, perspective. And they say, OK, Europe is emerging as an intermediate level between the national level and the global level. But for us, it's all a global market. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the end, um, Particularly maybe at the end of the 80s, I was not so sure, or it was not so sure also for actors of the time, what was uh, Europe and what was uh, uh, the world uh, the, or the market for economic actors. And also sometimes uh, these forces uh, in European actors were really using the word integrating, we want to integrate the banking market. And they did some, to some extent, but also um, these, these banking structures were also integrated in a more global market. So even the integration world, uh, so important in the, in the records in, of the, in the discourse of, uh, of uh, officials, officials from the commission was actually could be applied for a global a globalization uh, context. And uh, so that's what I meant by finishing, uh, finishing uh, part of the, of the article too try to question uh, capitalism uh, going you being used but also being beyond going well beyond uh, Europe yes because it's from reading your article it becomes very clear that capitalism is such a global phenomenon that it is really very difficult for the Europeans to try to capture or to tame this within the European integration context and that's really you know one of the things that really comes out in your article um, and for those who want to read more and to get greater insights into this wonderful world of banking regulation and attempts at supervision in the 19 70s and early 1980s. Um, you can read Alexi's work in um, uh, European Review of History and his article entitled A Globalization Laboratory, European Banking Regulation and Global Capitalism in the 1970s and early 1980s. To segue away from the world of capitalism, I ask each of my podcast guests a question from the Proust questionnaire. And Alexi, here's yours. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? You can't say money. No, no, it definitely would not be money or a banker or not a bank. I think I will have enough in this life about that. I would maybe uh, come back in a very different thing. Uh, I would think maybe of uh, a tree or something uh, very, uh, you know, we could live a long time and see uh, and see what's going on but you know uh, in a longer term perspective and uh, with different with less uh, i don't know less uh, movement uh, and chaos than in uh, than in a human life <laughs> 
um, and also quite good for the environment. So you could you'll be doing something good yeah. in, in your in your next <laughs> reincarnation. Uh, Dr. Alexi Drac, assistant professor in modern economic history at Paris Huit, Vincent Saint Denis University in Paris. Thanks for being my guest on this episode of the EU History Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>